Fit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Just type your details in and we'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the latest print version. But here on The Profile on Premier Christian Radio, I'm pleased to say I'm speaking to Dr. John Andrews. He's a leader, teacher and motivator who has been in full-time church leadership since 1987. He's currently called to the UK, but John has ministered in over 30 nations of the world. He has a passion to equip and inspire leaders as well as empower followers of Jesus into effective lifestyle and service. He's the author of 13 books, including The Real F Word, Extravagant, When Worship Becomes Lifestyle, The Freedom of Limitation, and most recently, Beyond Broken, Finding Power in the Pain. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. You're Thank very you. welcome. I understand, um, understand you were born in Belfast. True. And hear it slightly in your accent. Yes. Um, yes. So tell me a bit about um, life growing up. What are your memories of life in Belfast? Uh, well, I was amazingly uh, privileged and blessed to be born into a, 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 what people may call a Christian home. So my mom and my dad love Jesus, and uh, so I, I count that as one of my greatest privileges. Um, I was born uh, in an area of Belfast uh, called the Shankill Road, right at the top of that, that area. And when I was born there, of course, a beautiful area, beautiful city. Uh, but in 66, when I was born, there was no sign of the Troubles. And then, of course, they broke out in 69. So um, I, I really was a child of the Troubles, though hopefully not. A troubled child, um, but but really the troubles was very formative and very definitive in mm. my upbringing, and um, I think it was a strong sense of faith and Christian community that was one of the guiding principles to protect me and help me in that. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing, you know. I, I think when you're raised in something, you don't know any different. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. And loved living in Belfast, still love Belfast, and um, just had had a wonderful upbringing uh, with this, of course, subtext and backstory of mm. the Troubles. I mean, I've been there more recently, and it is is a wonderful place to to visit. But even now, as you look around, you're aware it's not that long ago that things were very, very yeah. different. But you say you were protected from some of that because of your good upbringing, so so you weren't involved yourself in in any of the kind of violence or fighting that went on. Uh, thank God, no uh, friends and and even wider family who got caught up both in perhaps participating in some of the violence and also members of my family killed in the violence. Um, so there were very few families in Northern Ireland untouched by the Troubles, directly or indirectly, really. But I, I think I think two, two key factors really helped me. Um, one was strong family that was rooted in strong faith. So my mum and dad, I never heard them talk about hatred. Um, I, never, I, I was from a Protestant background. I never heard my mum or dad talk in a hateful way against Catholics. Um, we were never encouraged to think like that or talk like that, even though we were surrounded by it. So I think growing up in a home that was solid, mm. not spectacular, just solid, uh, but a strong faith center, I think that was that was so necessary and formative. But then also I love sport. So when I wasn't at church, I was, you know, I was in a sports club, so either playing football or running or in a judo club. So I think the mixture of uh, being 
in a Christian community, mm. rooted into a Christian family, and then good, healthy, wholesome sort of other activities did did really protect me from... Was there a particular age where you feel like your faith really kind of became your own and wasn't just that you were brought up in a Christian family? Yeah, I, I mean, a very definite experience. I was eight years old. Uh, I was in a children's meeting. It was a Tuesday night. And uh, I remember exactly what the man spoke on. And in fact, uh, he used a, a, a verse from Revelation 3.20, which and I know after studying theology wasn't really what it meant. Uh, but he, he used the image of Jesus standing at my heart's door and wanting to get in. And, you know, I had at that moment, I would describe it now, wouldn't have known it then. I had what I believe was a revelation. I, I saw a, a picture, an image of Jesus wanting to enter my life and literally asking me to open up. And I remember turning to my friend, I was sitting on the end row. I, I love the end seat even now. <laughs> and I was sitting on the end seat of the row and I turned to my friend without any emotion or any hype. I just said, tonight I'm going to become a Christian. And that night I prayed a prayer of faith. And at eight years of age, I got an understanding, um, not a learned understanding, a received understanding that Jesus was the son of God. And that was eight years old, and I've never moved away from that. I've had ups and downs and moments, you know, but I've never, ever since that time moved away from the conviction Jesus mm. is the Son of God. And uh, so it was a very, even though Christian upbringing, that was a very definite personal experience. It's amazing how you, you mentioned that you later studied that verse and you think it means something else. Uh, a brilliant picture, perhaps, of how God can even use bad theology to save people. Absolutely. I'm not complaining. It was, and of course, the essence of it, the spirit of it is right. Um, but yes, I, I, I have laughed about it since, <laughs> that, that God used a slightly out-of-context verse to save me. <laughs> and you, um, you did some very serious study. This isn't just going off to Bible college once. I mean, you've, you've got a, a doctorate, you know, you're, you're Dr. John Andrews, and you've studied at really considerable length a lot of this stuff. Was there a particular moment where you felt called either into ministry or into mm. study, or, or were those two things the same for you? Yeah, um, I, I was, again, mid-teens. Um, I was studying for my O-levels, getting ready for my mocks, and it was a Sunday night and my parents had gone to church and very kindly let me not go to church because we usually all went together. <laughs> and to help me revise, they, they left me at home. And I remember, again, a very definite life-changing experience where um, I, I could only describe it this way. I was studying with my books and I felt the presence of God. Now, I know that that's, can be a difficult issue for people, but I, it literally felt like there was something heavy in the room. Not a bad heavy, just a, a good heavy. And I remember looking up and feeling something was in the room. And then without anyone speaking to me or, or seeing this before, I literally put my books down and I knelt down on the floor and then I lay on the floor flat on my face. Uh, I'd never seen that before. And while I was laying on the floor, I, I'll describe it this way. I either felt something or I heard the voice of God. And it went something like this. John, um, you can go your own way and I'll let you go that way. Or you can go my way and I want you to surrender to that. And I, I had some plans cooking in the back of my brain, which I am eternally grateful to God. He never <laughs> let me follow through because I'm not sure they would have been good plans. Was it to but, become a footballer or something like uh, that? Well, no, not as not even as good as that. I, I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to join the army. I wanted to be a paratrooper. I oh, still wow. can't believe I wanted to do that, but there we are. Um, <laughs> and so I had this plan cooking that I had a certain career direction. 
uh, and had it all worked out because that's the sort of person I am. And I felt like it was the Holy Spirit saying to me, I'll let you do that if you want. Or you can surrender. And, and I would love to tell you that when the Lord asked me to do that, he just gave me this sort of panoramic plan. But he didn't. There was no detail. But there was something within me. I just wanted whatever it was he was offering. And I remember intuitively coming out of my spirit saying, Lord, I, I want what you want. And I think that was the beginning of what we may call a call. Mm-hmm. And within, I was 15. Uh, within a couple of years, I was at Bible college. And the rest, as they say, is sort of history. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, a... so today, how would you describe your calling right now? Um, I mean, I, I would describe it, first of all, as a calling to followership of Jesus. So, so I, I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus. So whatever badge I wear or don't wear or have or don't have or whatever label what people want to slap on you, I, I, am, I am profoundly aware that without Jesus, my life's nothing. So, so my one ambition is to follow him. I think within that, I have a sense of call to two things which sort of wrap, wrap around each other. I have... I feel I'm I'm a leader, teacher, teacher, leader. That's my sort of mix. So I have a passion to learn and a passion to influence and help other people grow in their followership of Jesus. So my my great ambition is if in any way I can better myself, it is so that then I can help others to grab a hold of whatever Jesus wants for them. Mm-hmm. So so I would describe that as my call, that uh, following Jesus and then helping others to follow Jesus through through the gift of my leadership and teaching, whatever that looks like. So was it that sort of thing you had in mind when you first went to study theology? Not at all, no. Um, I, I mean, I, I went off to Bible college and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to look like. All I knew was I needed to go to Bible college and... I, I sometimes even encourage people now, I, I meet sometimes people now and they're wanting, you know, 25 steps ahead. And sometimes you get that and that's great. But most times you get the next step or the next two steps. And all I knew was I have to go. That's all I knew. I knew within me there was a leader. I wasn't super confident about the teacher that was emerging within me. I love to learn, but I, I didn't know what that was going to look like on the outside. And so Bible college was one of those very formative, crystallizing journeys for me. Bible college is not right for everybody, I suppose, but it was absolutely right for me. I loved every minute of it um, and learned so much, not only about the Bible, but about myself, about community, about my call. Met my wife to be there, which was pretty cool. Went for an education, left with a wife. So that was fantastic. <laughs> but but it, it was really in that environment of faith that I felt the crystallization of, of what the sharp end, the diamond head of that call mm. looked like. And straight out of that, you went really into ministry, didn't you? Yeah, into yeah. Into a little village, if I understand correctly, Indeed. in Yorkshire. Indeed. A little village that nobody's usually ever heard of unless they've been there. A little village called Havercroft. So I'll give it an international <laughs> plug. Um, Havercroft. And it was a little village halfway between Wakefield and Barnsley. And there was a church just down the road. And they had taken it over. It had been a, a little church that had closed. And so this mother church in Royston wanted to reopen it. And so they made an approach to the Bible college and sort of said, anyone want to have a go at this? And I felt God speak to me. I, I really wanted to go back to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And no doors opened up. And the Lord very clearly spoke to me about staying in England. And I love England. England's my call. I really, I really feel passionate for England. I love the UK. But England's my passion. And so we went to this little... Um, 
village church. Uh, the first Sunday morning, there was 13 of us. And I remember after the service was over, preached uh, stumbling through my first sermon. And uh, there was a guy at the end of the service who was there. And he said to me, would you like a lift up, up to your flat? So I had a little flat at the top of the village. I said, that would be great. Thank you. So I jumped in his car. He took me to the top of the village. As I got out of the, the car, he said to me, you'll never see me again. And, uh, and I never did. He, so, so my first Sunday in church, I shrunk the church from 13 to 12. So it was a magnificent moment of faith and courage and, and vision. So, so that was the beginning. And you know what? I was 20 years of age. We, in many ways, people would have said we were too young, but we loved Jesus. We loved the church. We just wanted to have a yeah. go. And I was so grateful to John Morgan, my senior pastor, who just saw something in me. And let me have a go. And mm. I, 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 I say this often, John gave me enough rope to fly with, but not enough to hang myself with. And he was so kind to me and uh, so generous to me. I, I owe so much to him mm. for that first chance. And it's not, um, I mean, I guess no church ministry is glamorous. That would be the wrong word. But uh, <laughs> we often hear about the kind of big city churches that are growing and very exciting large numbers. Very different in a village, presumably. This is going to look quite different in terms of growth or even about vision about what you want to achieve so yeah. so what was the kind of plan uh well uh the first plan was just like survival uh really was you know when, when we went there the, the sort of mother church john, john morgan i remember john saying to me just have a go hmm. let's see how you do and and that was so helpful now of course coming out of bible college 20 years of age you're just you're believing everything you touch will turn to gold and then you very 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 quickly discover like it's not turning to gold and sometimes it's turning to dust and what you discover about a village really quickly is there is no hiding place mm. it's just everybody knows everybody if it works you know you're you're like you're cool and if it doesn't work you are like persona non grata so it it, it there's no hiding place it's not glamorous it's super hard work, mm. as is every church, and every church has its problems. Yeah. But when you're pioneering with limited resource um, in the back end of nowhere, it's just a case of getting down, working hard, believing in what you believe, mm. and just not quitting. And I think villages, you know, villages need people to just go in and stay there for three, four, five, six, seven years yeah. and just do the right things every single day and every mm. single week in the hope that you ultimately win a bit of credibility, which sure. which buys a moment for you. Sure. Now, from Havercroft, which, of course, now has an international reputation, come on, come on. Uh, you moved to Rotherham New Life in South Yorkshire, where I'm told that you helped to repurpose that church into a vibrant missional community. So what is a vibrant missional community? What does that look like? Um, well, uh, first of all, to say this, um, Rotherham New Life was a good church when we went there. So good leaders, uh, good people. It had been led by a wonderful man of God and his wife, a guy called Ernest Anderson, who's still alive today and vibrant in ministry um but it would be fair to say uh without without being in any way unkind it, it had a very attractional model an attractional field so what i mean by that is people would tend to to come into the area where the church building was they would get out of their cars they would go to a church service they would get back in their cars and they would go home but we weren't really touching the community the building was in and when we did some work and drilled into that, you know, we, we, we literally were this sort of, you know, drop in, drop out Christian community. And our, our philosophy in ministry is that the church is called to be truly incarnational and missional. And what we mean by that is we want not just a Sunday presence. And hey, we love Sunday. Sunday's brill. 
Sunday's exciting. We love vibrant Sunday services, but it's one day in mm. seven. Yeah. And even within a Sunday, it's a few hours of the one day in seven. So we recognized, especially working in the village, if you did a one day in seven hit, no one's going to listen to you. So you've got to get into the community. You've got to incarnate the word. You've got to touch people. You've got to press the flesh. You've got to connect to where people are at. You've got to, you've got to translate the message down to their level without dumbing the message down. So really for us, what missional means is engaging with the community you are in, not simply asking them to come to us, but impacting and empowering uh, followers of Jesus to go to them. Mm. And so that's what we set out to do. We had a fabulous building. We were so grateful to the senior leadership uh, before we arrived because they paid the mortgage off. So although the building needed a bit of work doing to it, it was debt-free. And so we went to work really making the building accessible seven days a week, essentially, trying to have this thing open. Uh, by the time we left 16 years later, every single room in the building was in use. The, the building was, on average, open six days out of seven. We tried to, we tried to preserve a Sabbath if we could. Uh, and we had a, I, I believe we had a fantastic reputation in the community because we got into the fabric of the community and we didn't just uh, get in our cars mm. and go home, but we engaged with them. Yeah. You say 16 years there. That's a yeah. very long time. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So what came next? Well, we thought we were going to be at Rotherham for the rest of our lives. In fact, we had transitioned the church not only to a missional community, but changed its name. So it had a great new name, the Hub Christian Community, and the building became known as the Hub. And we loved all of that. And we thought we were going to be there the rest of our lives. Our children were really happy there. My wife, Dawn, really had the job of her dreams there. And then uh, we had a very good relationship with the church in the Midlands uh, called Renewal Christian Centre, an outstanding church. And they really approached us with the viewpoint of um, me perhaps taking over from the existing senior leader. And so they made a conversation with us. We took a year to decide on that. Uh, They were very kind to us and allowing us to have that time. And within that year, we really believe God spoke to us about about going to Solihull and uh, putting our roots down. And we saw renewal probably as our final move. This was it because Mm -hmm. we'd been in our first church nine and a half years. Yeah. Second church, 16 years, and then we saw renewal as being, this mm-hmm. is it. Yeah. Uh, and we stretched ourselves, bought a house there, and really believed we were going to be there for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And had a, an amazing time of ministry. Loved every single minute of my time there. Uh, but but unfortunately, in the midst of that journey, um, uh, it was decided that I wasn't going to be the senior leader uh, to take over. And so um, uh, I, I was invited sort of, to, to leave uh, in that sense so there was no there was no uh, difficulty there was no um, there was nothing bad going right. on it was just I think the leadership uh, had made a decision that, that I wasn't going to be the person wow. to take over from the existing senior it leader. must be tough though where you feel like this is it and all the doors are opening and God's called me and then it doesn't work out it was a total shock to us because we loved it there we absolutely loved it it was so different from Rotherham so Sullyhill quite a quite an affluent area uh, renewal would have been regarded then as one of the probably top 10 or 11 uh, sized churches in the UK in terms of especially churches outside London. So running somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 members. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we loved it there. My, my wife uh, got a fantastic job in the in the family centre, and she was family centre manager. Uh, my kids loved it. They were involved. We absolutely loved it. We we went from my goodness, this is a huge challenging step to to a place of this is this is amazing. Mm. And uh, we had the joy of working with a great team there at building, building a good team there. And so to be to be told this is not our future was was really a profound shock. Mm. And I, I remember I remember a moment um, where I took my youngest daughter at the time out for ice cream to sort of try and talk this over with her. She's a sharp girl, uh, has been, you know, for as long as I can remember. And so I thought, well, I'll take her out for ice cream, try and soften the blow. And so I put the ice cream down in front of her. And before she even touched the ice cream, she said to me, she said, so, Dad, if God told you to come here, why are we leaving? You're, you're looking at the eyes of a 13-year-old who's heartbroken. She she loved it there. She was settled. She was engaging. Um, we saw a great future for her there. She didn't want to leave, wherever leave meant. And so you just can't waffle or else she'll just have you. And I felt the Holy Spirit just help me. And, and I said to her, darling, you've, you've traveled me in different parts of the country. I said, sometimes we, you know, we, we punch the coordinates into our sat-nav. And the sat-nav says, go right. And it's the right way to go. But when you turn right, the road's blocked. Either there's roadworks or there's been an accident or something's happened. And I said to her, what happens then? I remember her answering. She said, well, the, the sat-nav recalculates it gives us a new route and I said that's that's where we're at I, I don't know I don't know why we're leaving I I can't explain it to you I I still don't have an answer to that I I still I still believe we should be there mm. you know so um but it, it is what it is and so I I we had to find a real faith answer to this roadblock and not a fobbed answer, because giving her a fobbed answer mm. would not work. She's too intelligent. Yeah. She's too sharp. It's interesting you use that language, because I know a lot, of, a lot of times people will say there is too much of that in the church, of just kind of giving a pat answer and just trying to say something that doesn't really mean anything, and it's all kind of airy-fairy, and what do we mean by this? We get carried away with our sort of spiritual language. You think, well, what is the actual practical steps here? What do we do? Absolutely. I, and, and I think, you know, sometimes in some situations there is an answer. And you're able to find that answer. Sometimes there is not an obvious answer. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we, when I say we, people maybe in the UK, uh, Westerners, we tend to read the Bible like a textbook. We're looking for exact answers. Whereas maybe the background of those who wrote the Bible in a more Jewish mindset, mm -hmm. they they have an ability to live with tension. Mm -hmm. So, So if you read the scriptures from a sort of Hebraic context. There's much more negotiation with tension. There's much more understanding. God is good, but we're suffering. Or, you know, God is faithful, and yet we're in captivity. They're able to hold these big ideas in tension that seem to contradict and don't seem to work. And actually, the tension leaves you with this sometimes unanswered question in the middle. And it's, sometimes it's okay, I think, to say to people, I don't know the answer. I do know God is still good. I know this is this is pretty awful. But there is some faith answer in the middle. You, you know, so to Beth Ann, uh, look, we, sh we, we should have turned right. We did turn right. And I don't know why the road's blocked. But here's what I do know. Mm -hmm. The divine satnav, forgive this, sounds cheesy, but the divine satnav has never let us down. So what we have to do is default back to what we know yeah. until we get an answer. And I think... I, I, I've discovered in my journey, P, 
people don't mind if you don't have the answer. I think they mind when you waffle mm. and when you try and fold them off mm. and when you try to give them some cliché superficial nonsense I think that's when people get really upset I think they say I don't know mm. I, I don't know but here's what I do know yeah. the Lord is still with us and, and he will help us well that brings us to the end of part one of today's show you're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me Sam Hales this is the show where we sit down for an in-depth interview with a leading Christian to find out more about their testimony life and ministry so join us on the other side of this break to hear more from Dr John Andrews Billy Graham was the man who preached to millions. Don't miss this month's Premier Christianity tribute magazine to our generation's greatest evangelist with photos, interviews and features on his life and legacy. Plus our exclusive interview with Franklin Graham, son of Billy. Krishkandaya reveals why the cross is bigger than you think and we investigate the Easter miracle of holy fire in Jerusalem. All that plus much more. Ask for your free copy of our Billy Graham tribute magazine at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is sponsored by Premier Christianity magazine. It's the UK's leading Christian magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue that we have put together, you can get it. And it's a very, very special edition. It's a Billy Graham tribute edition, 100 pages long, paying tribute to the greatest evangelist of our time. All that, plus loads more great content, and you can have one copy free if you go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, type your details in, and we will send you this special edition of the magazine, the Billy Graham Tribute Edition of Premier Christianity magazine. That's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But now it's time to get into the second part of today's show. I'm speaking to the author and speaker, Dr. John Andrews. Let's listen in. I last heard you speak at the Mission Worship Conference in Eastbourne, which um, happens every year. And um, indeed, the whole theme of the conference was actually based on your book, which must have been a nice experience. It was incredible. Um, Extravagance, when worship becomes lifestyle. And it gets said a lot, I think, in worship conferences that worship is not just about the music and there seems to be a kind of agreement on that Mm. and yet when most of us think about worship and use that term we are normally talking about music sure so this conference was designed to try and help us kind of bridge that gap was it worship is not just about songs and about 40 minutes in a church service it's got to be about the idea of god so at the center of everything that everything we do is a worship expression so so the way i use my money is worship. The way I treat my wife is worship. The way I raise my children is a worship unto God experience. The way I drive my car. The we worship. don't want to hear that one. Do uh, we? No, no, we don't. No, I, 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 that's a challenge to me. So, challenge to everyone, I think. Absolutely. So it's, it's that sense because for me, ultimately, worship is putting God at the center of everything and realigning your life to that center. Mm. And so in in the book, Extravagant, I I talk about the woman in Luke 7, the nameless woman, the voiceless woman, um, 
who in Luke 7 anoints Jesus. And it's a book I wanted to write for a decade and I just didn't feel capable to do it. Uh, But I see this incredible, she never speaks a word. There's no music. There's no atmosphere. In fact, if there is an atmosphere, it's pretty prickly. (laughs) And yet it's one of the most dynamic, outstanding, impactive moments of worship in the whole of the Gospels. And uh, I, I wanted to get to the heart of that. What was it that this woman uh, did? And more importantly, um, why did she do it? Because I, I, Jesus isn't calling me to, to get perfume and break it over his feet, but he's calling me to capture that spirit. What was it that made her do what she did? And uh, and, and I love the essence of that as a worship lifestyle, because if we can catch why she did it then we can take that why to college we can take that why to the sports field we can take that why into finance mm. we can take it anywhere it it doesn't stop because sunday stops or the band stops or the lights go out it can carry on anywhere because it's not about so much what you do it's about the why you're doing it uh, for and, yeah. and who you're doing it to. And and within that, you you spoke a lot about worshipping through suffering, through adversity. And you actually shared a very personal story um, about something your son went through. Did you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were faced... Uh, you know, uh, as followers of Jesus, uh, you you want to believe in God's blessing and prosperity and uh, everything's going to be good. And we, we had a very, very blessed life. And in May 2015, that changed dramatically when uh, we were informed that my son had been arrested. So he had been, uh, he was 18 years of age at the time. He had been accused of uh, a very serious crime. Um, had he ultimately been found guilty for that crime, he could have gone to jail for seven years. And uh, although there was some uncertainty as to whether this would go anywhere, it was essentially uh, one person's word against another. Um, it, it, it just kept going somewhere. And it went from May 2015 to November 2016 when we ended up in Crown Court. It's a long time of waiting and thinking, oh, is this going to, my goodness. is there going to be a court case? Is there not? Yeah. What's going to happen? I mean, you, you were fearing as a family that, as you say, he'd go to prison. Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, well, I've never experienced fear like it. David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, uh, interesting in the Hebrew, you know, the word death doesn't appear there. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that was the darkest valley as a family we've ever walked through. Um, My son, as a result of that, so you you can imagine the pressure he's constantly put on bail Mm. and just, we just keep rebailing. Our life is sort of on hold. Uh, As a result of that, he, he went from this bright, energetic, vivacious, happy, funny boy to completely and utterly depressed. And when you see this incredible bright light just diminish and disappear, it's terrifying. So to see your son, uh, you know, we we have an expression, the lights are on, but nobody's at home. Mm. To see your son disappear in depression was was bad enough. So he was helped by a a wonderful counsellor, which we're so grateful for. He was put on medication, which we were grateful for. But in the darkest part of that journey, he started to self-harm. And that was like, if if we were in a valley with the situation, then the self-harming for me and for my wife was the sort of valley floor. I mean, we're up to our neck in mud now. And I, I cannot express to you what it feels like to look at your son 
and see him slice his body and slice his arms. And uh, my wife was a hero in all of that, Dawn. She was immense. And to, you know, she literally, you know, cleans up the blood on the kitchen floor and literally bandages his arms and stuff like that. And that was a shocking, terrible, dreadful, dark moment for us. Um, and of course, we were still facing the prospect of, of, uh, of, of jail. And, you know, when your wife sits with your son in front of a doctor and the doctor says, you know, do you ever consider ending at all? And your son says every day. I, you know, as a Christian, as a dad, as a husband, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who spent his whole life helping other people, I can't tell you what that's like. And it is like someone plunging a dagger into your heart. And it was the most incredible experience. And yet in that, we had to find truth. We had to find hope. We had to find confession. So you had this paradox again of God is good and his love endures forever. And my son could go to jail. My son is self-harming and my son might kill himself any day. And those sort, those tensions were absolutely profound. And, it, and some days they felt unbearable. And in those moments, you're just throwing yourself on the word of God and on the presence of God and on, on good Christian community to sustain you. Wow. So um, he then went to court. And yeah. as I understand it, you, you had a word from God actually just before that yeah. court case. Uh, the Lord was amazingly good to us cause, uh, because if we had have gone on our emotions, we'd have, we'd have gone crackers, do you know? I mean, when this all started, had, had someone offered me a one-way ticket to Mars, I'd have taken it. You know, I would have literally mm. said, right, we're on, we're on the shuttle, let's go. Because it was terrifying, it was, it was horrific in every way. And, and with some of the, the other things going on in our world, we felt at times so alone and so isolated. And um, the, the Lord had given me Psalm 34, which, which was a bit of a weird word, because I, I wanted this sort of SAS, rescue me from the, from the valley word. And the yeah. Lord gave me Psalm 34, which begins, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on mm-hmm. my lips, sort of thing. And within Psalm 34, there's this word that not one of his bones, the righteous man's bones, will be broken. And I believe the Lord gave me that as a promise over my son, that he would not be lost, he would not be broken. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, we went to court and we, we just held on to that every day. And every day was a terrifying experience. I have mm-hmm. new empathy for people who have gone through the court system. It is it is a, and it's I suppose it's, not meant to be, but it is a brutal and just, just cold place to be. It's just uh, people look at you like you are dirt. You, you, you know, you, you feel like you're you're the bottom dregs of society, and people walk past you in the corridor and just look at you and know nothing about your story. It's just a terrible, terrible experience. And in the midst of that, every day God sustained us, and we had this wonderful word on the Thursday. So the court had started Monday. On the Thursday, we were hoping that the jury would be dismissed and then and then maybe get a verdict. And on the Thursday morning, I got a, a text from a wonderful friend called Rachel Field. And Rachel said, I was praying, God, give me a word for you from Psalm 37. And from one of the verses there, she said, I believe you're going to be vindicated by noon. Now, at that moment, you want to believe anything. You're just you're, you're clutching any straw that's being thrown at you. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that's just impossible because the jury hasn't even been dismissed and there's no way this is going to happen by, by noon. 
And so, but we grabbed it. It was like, we're in the water yeah. and you're grabbing the straw. Yeah. And so we grabbed it and we went to court. So the, the judge dismissed the jury at a quarter to 11 to go and deliberate. We were called back into the courtroom at 25 past 11. And it, when it's that fast, it's, it's either a slam dunk, he's guilty, or it's, right, we're throwing this out sort of thing. What did you think at that moment? Uh, I was trying not to think anything. Mm. Uh, we were just, I, I can't tell you the horror we were feeling. It was just, I mean, you are literally facing what felt like a life and death moment. Mm. And um, so with it being so fast, I, I, and having seen how the week had gone, I felt that this can only be a not guilty, but I didn't dare hope. Mm. And um, so we went back in and the, the the jury had called us back so quickly that they couldn't find the judge. It took about 10 minutes to get the judge back in the room. So he came in, the jury came in and they announced a, a not guilty verdict. And it, I can only say a tsunami of emotion uh, broke out. Uh, you know, I'm a very stoic person and I think I cried more in the 20 minutes from the verdict uh, afterwards then I, I cried for years mm. it was an immense moment uh, Psalm 124 says we have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare and that's what it felt like mm. and um, anyway we, we were ushered out we were just so overwhelmed with emotion you know, we all got carried away and we were sort of ushered out and I remember st- stepping out onto the street of the the, the high court uh, Newton Street in Birmingham I looked at my watch and it was exactly noon. <laughs> and um, I am eternally grateful to the Lord for mm. saving us. It feels like feels like he saved our whole family. You know, um, I don't think he just saved my son. It feels like he saved us. It felt like he saved my ministry. It felt, I, I'm not sure I could have carried on in ministry without maybe having a little break from everything uh, had my son been found guilty I'm not sure I had the strength or the emotional well-being to do that and it felt like we had all been saved and it was just an incredible incredible moment for which I am eternally grateful Mm. to God I mentioned earlier that um, you have studied a lot it's perhaps perhaps an unfair criticism but sometimes there's a bit of stereotype that people like yourselves who I don't know if you use the term Pentecostal or charismatic, <laughs> one of those terms. There's a bit of a stereotype that those sorts of people are, uh, they're all kind of like, you know, experiencing yeah. God in worship and stuff's going on. And, you know, you mentioned the amazing prophetic words that you had yeah. in, the, in the middle of that battle. Yeah. And sometimes there's a bit of a stereotype that we kind of get carried away in your motion and, and there isn't the always the theological underpinning. Now, clearly that criticism could not be leveled at yourself. You've studied at a very, very high level. But, but is it a fair criticism of charismatic movement in general? I think you could certainly say historically, yes. I mean, I mean, I'm a I'm a Pentecostal born and raised sort of thing. So card carrying Pentecostal. I was uh, raised in a Pentecostal church, filled with the Spirit in a sort of a, a book of accents um, uh, when I was twelve. Uh, and so, 
uh, absolutely locked and loaded on that. Yeah. I, I think uh, growing up in Belfast, we were often criticised, when say we, the Pentecostals were often criticised by other denominations for being maybe nine miles wide and one inch thick, you know. So it's, it's, it's that sort of sense of lots of experience, lots of emotion, lots of emphasis on the moving of the spirit and healings and this and that, but a wee bit light on mm. theology. And and I, ironically, that was one of my motivators to to study the Bible right, more. Yeah. I I was getting my backside kicked a little bit by by uh, others from different denominations mm. who were sort of suggesting, "Well, you panties, you know, you're all spirit, no brain." And and then I I started to study the scriptures. I looked at Jesus, who was a superb rabbi and filled with the spirit. Paul a teacher par excellence filled with the spirit and i saw this this compatibility in the new testament of a spirit-filled church that also understood the word of god and so my my mantra is i believe you can be spirit-filled and have a brain at the same time (laughs) so so for me there's no contradiction i think for early pentecostals it felt like there was and i think our pentecostal forefathers and foremothers Many of them were reacting against what they saw as a liberalization of theology. They were reacting against experts who were actually stripping the Bible of its power. Now, that, that's a fairly simplified, but it's a fair one, I think, in terms of history. Yeah. And so they reacted against anything that sounded like academia, mm. anything that looked like, you know, studying the truth out of the Bible, anything that took away from the simplicity of the text. And Pentecostals were known, and I would say still are known, for a relatively simple hermeneutic, a relatively simple approach to the Scriptures, where where the the church I grew up in, they taught us, if it's in the Bible, believe it. So that was my simple hermeneutic, which has become a bit more sophisticated since. But, But I think Pentecostalism generally has become more theologically mm. uh, mature. Yeah. How has studying theology changed you? Because I imagine you can't have this lifetime of looking at the Bible, making that your kind of project and doing all of this work and not change your mind, perhaps on some big issues. Are there any big issues that you've um, changed your mind on over the years? Oh, I, I mean, I, I think I think if you engage with the Bible at any consistent level, you're always changing your mind. Uh, you know, I, I think the wonderful thing about the Bible, I've studied it all my adult life. And even this morning, uh, in my early morning devotions, I pick up the book and I've read a passage this morning that I've I've read a hundred times or more and you see something brand new. How did I miss that? Where Where has that been hiding? And so the Bible constantly speaks. For me, it's not just a book. It is the breath of God. It's not just it's not just um, literature. It is life. So so for me, it's the only book I own that has the breath of God in it. And and I love this. I love this. You know, man is dust, but the breath of God is within him. At one, in one sense, the Bible is a book. In another sense, it's the breath of God. So for me, I engage with the Bible, not simply intellectually. I want to come to the Bible with both my brain alert, but my spirit sensitive. And I think if you only approach the Bible via your brain then there will be things within it that don't always make sense uh, because it doesn't fit, it doesn't quite square up, or or it seems to sit at odds with other ideas. Whereas if you approach it both with your brain uh, open and your spirit sensitive, I think it becomes then uh, both an intellectual and a supernatural experience. And I think that's, that's how the Bible's supposed to be read. If you approach it as a textbook, I think you miss stuff. You have to approach it as a life book. You know, Torah, Christians always translate Torah as, as law, but actually Torah means instruction. It, it's the idea of 
eat this and you will live. Imbibe this and it will change you. So, so knowledge is not knowledge for the sake of understanding. Knowledge is knowledge for the sake of life and learning. Uh, what one of my favorite verses in Proverbs is: "He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who cherishes understanding prospers." And so, I, I, I that's how I approach the text. I'm not simply engaging with it as a textbook. I, I want to romance the text. Mm-hmm. The text is God's spirit, not just God's mind. And so I, I I think if you approach it like that, you'll always change your thinking. It will always affect how you view your world. There will be things you thought you knew, and then you engage with them. You go, okay, I need to rethink that idea. And that's why I'm, I'm a committed, passionate advocate of lifelong learning. We've got to be people continually committed to the text. You gave a, an interview and you talked about how in church, sadly, often people aren't reading the Bible. You said this, you said, we're almost returning to a pre-Reformation stance in some places around the world where all the expertise comes from the front, from the person speaking. And the danger is that people are turning up for 45 minutes of teaching from an expert and not really engaging, not really being taught how to engage with the Bible in a relevant way for the 21st century. Is that still the case? Even in my work in Bible college, so even as a part-time lecturer, when I would teach, say, the Gospel of Luke to mm. first years, I would always ask the class two questions. Who's read the whole of the 66 books of the Bible at some point in your Christian life? or who's And who's read the New Testament part of the Bible? The answers were always shocking. So, so I would ask for just honesty. No one's going to get thrown out of the class here. But before I start teaching on the Gospel of Luke, I just want to make sure we've got a bit of a, a big picture worldview here of the Bible. So, for example, in my last class, uh, a class of 32, uh, nine had read the Bible in its entirety. And a further uh, 12 had read the New Testament. So what it means is I, I'm dealing with, with pushing nearly half the class potentially who haven't really got a big picture feel and view of the Bible. And therefore, you're talking about a segment of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke, without any real hooks and context to that. So things that Dr. Luke would talk about, that you won't get them unless you've got a wider view. And then in my travels up and down the country, I would, I would say, that's turning our Bibles too. And I would open up my Bible. Uh, and even though I, I love all the electronic stuff, I carry a hard copy when mm-hmm. I'm preaching um, as a visual aid, really. And, uh, and I would say anecdotally, so, so please, big caveat there. I would say anecdotally, two thirds of the congregation don't move on average. Um, now, some of that, sometimes that's because the words are on the screen sometimes it's because people just aren't bringing the text mm-hmm. in church and they're just a routine services when do we just read the bible for sake of reading the bible uh and actually even sometimes our you know i i've been in church and, and sometimes even preachers don't reference the bible in terms of a reading so the danger is you could turn up to a church service where you expect the bible to be mm-hmm. read and yet it's not really engaged with. And my argument would be, if people aren't bringing their Bibles to a Christian community gathering, I'm fairly certain they're probably not engaging with the Bible privately, consistently. Uh, And again, I would be criticized for that observation, so I accept that. But uh, I think if we drilled into that a little bit, that and so... The, the danger is, so my comment about pre-Reformation, the danger is the church is returning to a front-led dynamic where we were always meant to be a community-orientated dynamic. Uh, and the idea that 
the doctor, the pastor, the vicar at the front is the expert and you listen to what you're told is an alien concept, I think, mm. in Christian community and even Jewish community. And, and, and so that it's that idea. And even the worship experience, if we're not careful, it's a, it's a, and I love it. I love it all. Uh, genuinely, I've written a book about it, so I absolutely love it. But the danger is you get a you get a band at the front having a great time, and then two thirds of the audience sort of spaced out. So, so worship is about community with God at the center. Bible learning is about community with God at the center, and we've got to try and maintain those big connecting points if we're going to grow strong disciples, not just have uh, Christian audiences. Mm. How should someone who's just sitting in a church and hearing from the front, how should you respond or relate to your pastor? Because sure. presumably there should also be this expectation that people are checking out what's in the word for themselves. Absolutely. And if it does contradict what they're hearing, there's some kind of discernment that happens. And, and perhaps even you as a preacher can agree with that. Oh, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. In fact, I would say as a teacher, um, I get worried when there aren't questions. So if you're not asking questions after I teach, I haven't taught well. So that's my concern. And I don't mean silly questions. I don't mean pedantic nonsense. I'm not talking about, you know, the sorts of questions that are about splitting hairs and just about information. I'm talking about life wisdom now. I'm talking about applying God's word and truth to our everyday experience. So if we're teaching the Bible, right, there should be questions. People should be saying, how does that work? What does that mean? Is that really true Mm -hmm. in the sense that that hasn't been my experience? So how do we make that work? So, for example, in in my home church, one church um, based in Gloucester, I had the privilege of teaching our youth workers. So we have six expressions and and we brought all the youth workers together from those expressions. And I, I was given a couple of sessions to teach. What really impressed me was not how well they listened. What really impressed me was the caliber of the questions. The questions were fantastic. So, you know, when you open it up for questions and you're dealing with a bunch of young adults, I, I know that after teaching for 40 minutes, if, if somebody says to me, so, so when, did you, when did you start supporting Liverpool Football Club? All right, <laughs> if I get that question, yeah. I'm in trouble. Yeah. But the questions were high caliber questions. Now, that's what I want. I think that's what the Christian community should be producing. High caliber questions because questions produce a grappling with the issues, grappling with truth, holding the paradoxes and the tensions together, finding some answers, Mm. or finding faith resolution where there aren't answers. Mm. And then we can face a world that's asking some of the tough questions, and we can face it with confidence. But if we can't even ask the right questions in our own Christian communities, I think think we're in desperate trouble. The the well-known American New York-based pastor Tim Keller recommends that preachers might want to consider opening up for Q&A after their sermon. And one of the reasons he suggests that is you find out very quickly if people have heard what you've said or if there's misunderstandings. And also, as you say, it gives you an opportunity to to kind of push back a bit. Is that the sort of thing you've experimented with at various conferences or preaching this kind of Q&A thing afterwards? Because in my experience, that's quite unusual. Yeah, you would do it more, I'd say... uh training events or um, specific conference events. So so if you're speaking, say, at a men's conference, I, I think when you've got 100 men in the room or whatever, you, you, you can break that down a bit. Uh, like our youth leaders retreat, uh, there was uh, 25, 30 youth leaders there. So you can create all sorts of fantastic breakout interaction. Mm-hmm. It, it can be a bit more difficult, say, in a larger congregation. 
Uh, and obviously you have to find creative ways to do that. And some churches have, you know, you can text your questions in, you can email them in, or you can push them through your connect groups or whatever. But but I love I love the security of being able to say, let's hear people. And I think if 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 it's, and every preacher teacher should have had this experience, you know, where you stand in the foyer and you're having a conversation with someone and you realize I've just spent the last 40 minutes talking about something that hasn't connected to this person at all. That is a fairly shocking experience. And for, for those of us that really take that craft seriously, that really want to help followers of Jesus, it's a slightly depressing experience when, when you feel like I haven't helped this person at all. When you're not studying and preaching and teaching and traveling around the world, what do you do to relax? I understand actually you have some, um, you have some sausage dogs with some fantastic names, if Marvelous. I remember correctly. Yes, well, I, if you hadn't have raised it, I would have got them in because they get upset if I don't <laughs> mention them. So we have two sausage dogs. Our boy sausage dog is called Pepperoni. And uh, he is gorgeous. So if you've ever seen um, the sort of Vitality sausage dog on TV, he is a dead ringer of that one. And then we have Salami, our girl sausage dog. And they, they've got together a couple of times and produced little sausages wow, as well. Really? Yes, so we've had wow. two batches of sausages, which are now in different parts of the country. So we love our sausage dogs. Uh, if I had my way, I would now have a house full of them. I love them. And um, we love walking. Uh, so that's a big tank filler for us. Don and I love walking. We live 10 minutes from the Cotswolds. Nice. Uh, so blessed. And we would uh, do sections, you know, uh, the other week, just 10 miles, 11 mile walk. Just love that. So that's yeah. a, that's physically it's great for us and it fills our tank. Uh, we love we love movies, love the cinema, uh, love watching good movies, good uh, Netflix series. And of course, passionate supporter of the greatest football team in the world, Liverpool. Uh, we better so, stop there before I get some complaints. Lifelong, yeah. you say? Uh, yes, well, since 1974. I was going to so, say, if you grew up in Belfast, then... Well, it was interesting. In Belfast, you either supported Man United or Liverpool because of the big Irish communities ah, in both cities. Okay. So both Man United and Liverpool uh, uh, have huge followings in Belfast. Thankfully, I was delivered from following Man United. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Jesus supports Liverpool. You know, <laughs> With an anthem like You'll Never Walk Alone, it, it could only be a Jesus team so yeah well well i have to say the clock has saved me and we have run out of time before we get into before we get into that and i get into massive trouble no in all seriousness john it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming in it's been my pleasure and thank you for having me i'm sam hales you've been listening to the profile this afternoon on premier christian radio the show where we sit down for a long discussion with a leading christian and find out more about their life and ministry i do hope you enjoyed that chat with dr john Andrews. If you would like to hear more interviews like that with leading Christians from all walks of life, then go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You'll be able to access past episodes of all sorts of fascinating interviews the team and I have done on this show. And you can also now listen as a podcast. More and more people are getting this show as a podcast, meaning that every single week you will have delivered to your phone or tablet or however you access your podcast, you'll get a new interview delivered every single week week just go to the profile on whatever podcast provider you use click subscribe and you can access the show that way if you're also able to rate us that would be wonderful as well thanks so much for joining me here this afternoon on premier christian radio it's been great to have you with us we'll be back same time next week but for now i'll leave you with the best of the week it's premier playback